books allow us to break free of that, step outside of the prison, if you like, into other vistas, other, other countries. Yeah. So it's a liberation as well as an education. Brother Paul Williams, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Well, welcome Assalam, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you with us today, Paul. And uh, in many ways, Paul, today I want to turn the tables on you. Uh, many of my viewers and listeners will know that you have enriched the Muslim discourse with blog and theology, your online YouTube channel and podcast. But I think challenges the notion that people want simple and maybe even simplistic content. A lot of your, uh, mm. lot of your content is pretty heavy. And yep. uh, alhamdulillah, it's, it, as I said, it's really enriched uh, Muslims around the world. And you can see that from the comments and the discussions that I had uh, after you post a video. Now, I've invited <clears> you <throat> here today because I take from your many interviews that you're an avid reader. I've asked you to bring along your top 10 books of all time, mm -hmm. uh, your book recommendations, which our viewers will see stacked up here on our, on our table. Yep. Um, and uh, what I would like you to do today is start from number 10, mm -hmm. right down to your most favorite book, number one. Yep. And, and I would like you to explain and express <laughs> why these are your favorite books yep. and uh, mm. maybe talk about the books and the authors and, and uh, what makes these books special in your vast collection of, of books that you uh, that you read. Mm. Um, now, let's begin maybe before we, we, we dive into your top 10. Mm. Um, I would like to ask a question really about reading. Um, why is reading still important in this digital age? Well, for me, that, that's a difficult question to grasp in, in a way. It's like asking why is eating so important in this digital age? Why is breathing important? <laughs> because it's basic to our species. Yeah. What I mean by that is acquiring knowledge, yeah. good knowledge, reliable knowledge, is important to our species. Otherwise, how will we interact? How will we grow as human beings? How will we fulfill our God-given purpose, which is to understand the world and our reason for existence? So the question for me, I have a hard time getting my, way, my mind around it, to be yes. honest, because it's so self-evident. But I appreciate it's not necessarily self-evident to, to some people, yeah. uh, maybe for other reasons. But for me, it, it's axiomatic. But we can gain knowledge from channels like yours, Blogging Theology. Mm. We can get knowledge from YouTube, from podcasts, from viewing various mm. documentaries on, yep. on TV. And that seems like where the movement is. I mean, the movement may be away from books and more towards these visual and, uh, you know, um, ways by which people can access knowledge like they never were able to do maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, is that a fair? Yeah, I think there's a half truth. I think there are a lot of uh, readers still around. I mean, you read books, yeah. I read books, everyone I talk, talk to still reads books, whether mm. it be PDFs or uh, hard copies. Yeah. Uh, the bookshops are still full, like Foils and Charing Cross Road or Waterstones here in London. Yeah. Admittedly, there are fewer of them, but the, the, the few that remain are big. And if you go into these places, a lot of people are buying books. Yeah. And I think that Amazon is, is a thriving industry. Obviously, the, the owner I think, is the world richest man or of course, was yeah. or something. So, um, yeah. no, there's still a, a place for books. But, but more interestingly, I think, for me, they give access to other great minds, yeah. to geniuses of the past, right. because we can access Plato, Aristotle, we can access the Hadiths of the Prophet upon whom be peace through yeah. reading. Um, and this is unique opportunity, a unique channel to do that. Yeah. And also, it's a form of time travel for me, <laughs> because, you know, the past is a foreign country, as the cliche goes, yeah. but we can access other eras, other historical epochs, yeah. different ways of seeing the world. And that helps us to break free of the parochialism and the relativity of our monoculture, as uh, Tim Winter calls it, the, you know, we only have a certain 
slice of reality we're allowed to perceive things through books allow us to break free of that step outside of the prison if you like into other vistas other other countries so it's a liberation as well as an education i think do you not feel that uh, the art Mm. of reading is dying i mean i teach a lot of younger students and maybe 15 years ago when I started out in teaching, um, a student would pick up a paper or read a biography of a politician, for example, and it would just be second mm. nature if they want to grasp a subject, in my case, politics, further and in more depth, they would read a book. Today, mm. I find it's very rare to find a young person, or at least in the circles in, in my, in, in, in the people I teach who, who pick up a book as a, you know, who see it as breathing air as you do. Well, I mean, all the young people I know read books. Ah. All of them, yeah. Um, Maybe it's just my <laughs> teaching. Um, no, no, I, I don't know the. I, mean, I don't know the the stats on this. You could yeah. be right. I, I don't know, but seriously, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't read. Mm. Uh, and all, all the young people that I know, students, whatever, all read books. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, there could be a tendency away from hard copies of books yeah. towards online content. Yeah. That I would certainly see happening. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the, the abandonment of all reading. I'd like to see some hard stats on that. and um, Well, maybe you know. No, uh, I, I, um, I don't. And maybe it's just all anecdotal and it's just people I, I, I come across. What about, so you read mostly non-fiction books. Do you read fiction? I do. And, well? and one of my uh, selected books is, is a, a work of uh, fiction. Oh, but wow. uh, literature, uh, English literature, obviously, is, yeah. is very important to me, particularly in the 19th century novel yeah. uh, and poetry, uh, the metaphysical poets and the uh, 17th century, John Donne and Marvel and so on. Uh, I've always been... Are very close to my heart since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so poetry and good literature. I mentioned George Eliot, mm. so 19th century novels like George Eliot, mm. and Dickens, mm. Jane Austen, and others are incredibly uh, fantastic. I mean, yeah. to, to enter into their world yeah. is to be enriched, to have one's world coloured yes. by um, a kaleidoscope of different sensations and ideas. Yes. And um, I don't know why one would want that. It's just, it's a great, it's a great. Um, Cool. Recently, I've been um, listening to audiobooks, and I feel yeah. a sense of I'm like I'm cheating here when I when <laughs> I listen to an audiobook. I'm not picking up a, a book like your your good self. And is that is that a problem there in my well, stories are yeah. traditionally told orally? Ah. You know, um, this is the traditional, and the Quran is taught orally. Uh, that's what the Quran means, recitation. Yes. Yeah. So the oral transmission of stories or narratives yeah. is, is 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 the the way our species have done things traditionally. So I don't yeah. see this as some kind of easy cop out or modern cop out. Yeah. Is actually to go back to the traditional way of transmitting. Uh, stories and narratives and, and listening to them. Yeah. So the printed word is the latecomer, not the oral transmission. Yeah, before we get to your number 10 book, then, mm. um, if a person found it very difficult to read and they don't schedule reading into, into their plan, their daily plan or their weekly plan, how would you, like, how would they start? What's your, what's your recommendation, Paul? I'm, I'm not, I must confess, I'm not a good person to ask that question. Okay. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I think... For me, reading is like breathing or eating, as I say. Yeah. It's always been part of my nature to do so. Uh, so when people ask me, you know, how do I begin reading or how do I... I actually don't know the answer to that because it would I mean acquiring a set of skills and a strategy which I've never adopted sure. because it's just like what I do. Uh, and if I was to stop doing it, I, I, w- I can't actually conceive what life would be like. Yeah. So I'm actually not a good person to ask. Sorry, I don't know the answer. No, the I, I think, I think um, um, I've... I've you know, I read, but I find it very difficult to explain to others why, apart from all of the explanation that you gave, and, and it's very valid, um, I find it very difficult to to get someone to read. And I think maybe that's, uh, as a teacher, I find that 
that's probably one of my mm. failings. Um, I mean, it's curiosity about... I think it's, it's driven by curiosity about well, the world. Yeah. I want to understand the world, and that's what explains my interest in philosophy and theology, mm. as, as well as uh, diverse human experience, which explains my interest, say, in Dickens, yeah. who gives access to the, you know, the Victorian worldview and all the problems associated with that, and explains my interest in religion because yeah. it's transcending one's own ego. So True. it's driven by curiosity and desire to understand. Yes. So that may be a key for me anyway. Well, let's start with book number 10 mm. then, Paul. Yeah. Um, I just disclaimer, these books are not definitive. The other books I could have included, sure. apart from one or two, which definitely would be on any list of mine, yeah. um, which we'll come to. But some of these books uh, could easily have been, um, other books could have been on the list. So sure. it's not really a definitive fixed list. Yeah. But um, the first one, number mm -hmm. 10, um, going up to number one, is this book called The Making of a Salafi Muslim Woman, okay. Paths to Conversion yes. uh, by uh, Annabel Inger. Uh, it's published by Oxford University Press. Yeah. And Annabelle um, is an academic teaching at King's College here in London and at SOAS. Um, so she's not a Muslim, yeah. uh, but she is obviously a woman. And I say that because she is a woman looking at Salafi woman, Muslim women's experience. Yeah. And um, this is academic research. Yes. And it's not like opinion. It's based on the surveys and skilled way that she has tried to understand the subject uh, that she's chosen to look at. Yes. Well, I just wanted to read uh, just two paragraphs from uh, her book, uh, from the introduction, actually, page five, because and, and this and then comment on why I think this is so significant. And it, I think it really is significant what she says. Yes. Because very few studies have been done sympathetically of trying to listen to Salafi women and their experiences. Most of it's been judging them or making assumptions about them yeah. rather than listening to their actual experience. Because, of course, there is a stereotype yes. in the Western press about Salafis in general, but also Salafi yes. Muslim women in general. Yes, absolutely. Um, so are you saying that um, this book in a way breaks those stereotypes? And well, I'll, I'll read, I'll read the quote and then, yeah. um, uh, and I'm not saying this is a representative quote or her no. whole thesis, but I, was, I think it does say something there. Mm. She says, Salafi women are typically considered to be either a sinister part of the radicalization apparatus or pitiful domestic slaves. Mm. Similarly, the wearing of the burqa, in inverted commas, often used to describe the niqab or the jilbab, warm together, is a sign of Islamist extremism, self-segregation, and or female oppression. And then she references some articles that actually state this. Yes. The reality, however, is much more complicated. Most Salafis in Europe, including those who feature in this study, are explicitly against violence so that they should not be essentialized as a security threat. Mm. Furthermore, empirical research suggests that Muslim veiling in the United Kingdom, she focuses on the UK Salafi experience, yeah. is largely a personal choice. And this study indicates that Salafi niqab wearing is no different. In fact, she says, far from being forced by their families to cover up, and this is a really interesting point, yeah. I discovered that many Salafi women are subject to considerable pressure to wear less. The vast majority come from non-Salafi families and became Salafis as teenagers and adults. Many are converts with other faith backgrounds. Mm. The rest are largely from less conservative or non-observant Muslim families. I have never heard of coerced niqab wearing, but have met many women whose families implore them or try to force them, sometimes threatening violence, to discard their veils and gowns, which they saw as the culture of the Arabs mm. or even extremist i'll leave it there 
Fascinating. This is peer-reviewed academic research. Yeah. And why does this matter? Because in Germany, uh, well, I was recently in France, where I visit regularly, um, a completely opposite stereotype prevails. Yes. It's not based on reality. It's based yeah. on... It's a myth we've had about Jews, about uh, other ethnic minorities, about Catholics you know, in, in, in England. We had these appalling caricatures, which are not based on the truth. Mm. And occasionally you get a brave academic who has no uh, particular vested interest in this. She's not a, a Muslim. Yeah. Um, come along and do objective study um, and talking to thousands and thousands of Salafi women. Yeah. And you hear a very different story. So the making of a Salafi woman positive conversion has been recommended by some very distinguished scholars, uh, academics on the back, published by Oxford University Press, yeah. really is a myth buster. And yeah. that's why I like this book. It tells the truth about Muslims in Britain yeah. who are so, so often shrouded in lies, misconceptions, deliberate um, falsities, actually. Yes. Despite us speaking the truth, the, the myths still prevail. And that's the tragedy. Where do these myths come from, Paul? I mean, you are, um, dare I say, an Englishman. You are someone, you are an Englishman. Dare I say. Dare I say. Is Sorry. something one has to dare about no, these days? Yeah. Gosh, I'm an Englishman. Uh, you're an Englishman. In a country full of them. <laughs> In a country full of Englishmen. In England? Uh, Sorry, right. carry on. Um, where does mm. this, um, I don't know if it's animus maybe, if that's the right word, towards Muslims, in particular Muslim women, come from? I mean, how do we, where do we locate uh, this type of animosity or this stereotype in 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 um in british thinking well it, it is part of the unfortunately the civilizational conflict that's yeah. existed for is it post 9 11 no no it's pre 9 11 really? this goes back for virtually 1400 years uh -huh. if you look at how christian some christians like john of damascus mm. the the famous christian theologian looked perceived muslims and you go through the medieval period you get this kind of self-perpetuating um, narrative about muslims or what they're really like mm which are 99%, particularly in the past, based on complete rubbish, I mean, yeah. inaccurate information. Yes. Where does that come from? Well, it's the same kind of question we can ask about myths about Jews as baby killers yeah. uh, or, or uh, Christ killers in, in, in anti-Semitic discourse in Christian Europe, Martin Luther, particularly vicious. Really? Um, the same language about Catholics in England who were persecuted until the 19th century yeah. in England, you know, that these people were alien, foreigners, couldn't be trusted, they're not really British. This is Catholics in England, born yes. here, you know. Yeah. You get these bizarre notions born of xenophobia and fear and ignorance. And I think we see many parallel... I, I don't want to kind of single out Muslims as if they're kind of unique. They're not, although the characteristics of the prejudice are unique. Yeah. But they do parallel many other similar kinds of misrepresentation of minorities we have seen in the West. Um, and But fortunately, it's, well, some of it's breaking down. I mean, it's a fascinating book, um, and and the way you describe it, I think it's worth well worth a read. Yeah. Um, why does Miss Inge say at, when when referring to converts, why do so many white, in inverted commas, of women in Britain mm. um, become Muslims? Oh, well, she does address that too, and yeah. I, I didn't prepare a reading uh, Sorry, from that. But um, yeah. if I remember rightly, it, it's the reasons that. We all, or those of us who embrace Islam yeah. uh, from a non-Muslim background, embrace Islam. Yeah. It provides a complete deen, a complete way of life that yeah. provides answers to yeah. our problems, our family problems, how mm. we relate, men and women relate to each other, yeah. what the purpose of life, it gives a sense of moral uh, certitude, a sense of guidance and so on. And these are the reasons why. And, and typically, Salafi women um, take it really seriously and sure. go right back to the Quran and the Sunnah as understood yeah. by the early generations the first three generations of the Salaf. So they yeah. have that particular conceptualization of it. Yeah. Uh, and often they're quite courageous because they, they, you know, they, 
they can suffer even violence from their really? non-Muslim or even Muslim family members yeah. who disapprove of them taking their faith so seriously. So, Well, thank you very much. I think that's a fantastic book to start with. So let's move on mm. to book number nine. Well, this list. couldn't be more different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this book, um, how can I put it? It's going to take a bit of explaining. Go on. Uh, this is a book called The Critic of Pure Reason by a philosopher, a German philosopher called Immanuel Kant. Yes. Um, now, this book was uh, first published in 1781. Mm-hmm. Um, what can I say about this incredible work? Um, I'm, I'm very interested in philosophy. I study philosophy at university. Yeah. And um, this book, for me, is the Mount Everest of works of philosophy. It is yeah. the most difficult, challenging book ever written by a philosopher. Right. And I think many professional philosophers would agree with that. Um, it, it's, it, it encapsulates uh, many of the Enlightenment ideals uh, to do with how we, how we view the world. I'm not mm. going to go into a detailed explanation of this because sure. it, it, it will, will take us way off the subject. And it's yeah. part of a, a dis- an ongoing discussion in Western philosophy that Kant contributes to, principally between the rationalists represented by Descartes and the empiricists represented by the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. Yeah. And he comes along and and basically offers a synthesis. Again, I'm resisting temptation to get involved in what the discussion is about. Um, but uh, the critic of pure reason, um, oh, interestingly, um, Kant's doctoral thesis yes. um, was, and I've actually written down here because uh, is headed with the words Bismillah Rahman Rahim really? in Arabic. Wow. Um, and that puzzled a lot of people, and it still puzzles people today, why yeah. he had this, uh, in the name of God, sorry, the most compassionate, the most merciful. Yeah. It begins every surah of the Quran, apart yes. from one, one, I think, number yes. nine. Yeah. Um, so this, this is interesting. Um, but uh, just to give you uh, just one quote, because at least I can say I've quoted Kant. Yeah. He says at the very beginning, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and more enduringly reflection is occupied with them, the starry heavens above and the moral law within me. Um, so this is the critic of pure reason. And I often joke because CPR, the critic of pure reason, you will need CPR <laughs> after having read this. CPR is cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Yes. That is an original joke with me, I hasten to it. It is copyrighted yes. and trademarked. You cannot use it. That's yeah. right. Okay. So you will need CPR after having read CPR. Yeah. Uh, no, but it, it is um, a work of genius. And when I first read it, I was, I am still constantly in awe of the incredible uh, intellect that this guy uh, uh, brought to the subject. It's mm. quite extraordinary. Another reason to read is to appreciate greatness mm. uh, rather than mendacity and banality and ugliness, mm. sheer genius, and is accessible through reading. Yeah. Um, and he is considered by most philosophers to be the founder of modern philosophy. Yes. So first you have Plato going back to the ancient Greeks, but then in modern philosophy since the 17th century, yeah. Kant is the greatest philosopher ever in the West. Yeah. So and how accessible is, is it? It's totally place? unaccessible. <laughs> Well, thank I'm you not going to kid you. It's totally inaccessible. <laughs> and unless you've got a philosophical background. Yes. I remember at college, I had to wait to the second year before we were allowed to attend Kant's lectures. And I remember going in my first year at, uh, at uni, um, because I was already familiar with Kant, yeah. jumping that and going to a class in the second year, because I could. Yes. And A.C. Grayling, who was my tutor. Oh, of course, yes. Um, my personal tutor. Oh, wow. Um, looked, he made, a, I sat at the back of the class, hoping he wouldn't see me. Yeah. And he made a comment saying, 
Well, this is very good. I noticed some people here are not haven't even completed the first year, and they're sitting in the club. And of course, I was allowed to be there because yeah. I was a member of the university. Sure. But uh, he he didn't quite approve. But right. I sat there because I thought, but we won't want to hear about this yes. guy. Yeah. And and Asin Grayling is a brilliant expositor of Kant. Of course. Anyway, yeah. enough about him. He's an atheist. Yeah, that's right. Well, book number eight, please. <laughs> yes. Paul. Another complete change of scenery. Uh, this uh, is the Oxford Book of English Verse. <laughs> It has a lovely cover normally, but it's worn away because really? I've used it so much. Wow. And this uh, is the canonical collection yes. uh, of English poetry, published by Oxford University Press, of course. Yeah. And you get poems that start from, it's uh, the contents. The first one is in the 13th century. Yeah. Um, and it almost sounds German, the language, uh, right up to the 20th century. And um, it contains over 800 poems. Um and, oh, actually, let me just get that right. Yeah, 821 poems. Uh-huh. And I have read every poem here. And my what I did was, a couple of years ago, I determined that I would read every poem in here, one poem a day. Yes. Even if I didn't like the poem, I would read it because it was thought to be important enough to be in the canonical collection of poetry for the English language. Yeah. I would try and appreciate it. And I used YouTube, by the way, because a lot of these poems are recited on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. Mm. And so I'm not going to read them all, uh, but I, um, I'm going to read one, uh, one of my poems, one yes. of my favorites, I yeah. mean, yeah. by a guy called Percy Shelley. Shelley, yes. Um, who was a bit of a bad boy, really. He was a bit of a, a, bit of a rebel. Um, How was he a rebel? Well, he got sent down for Oxford or Cambridge for being an atheist. And okay. Whether or not he was, he was friends of... Uh, you know, people who wrote Frankenstein. Oh, we're yes. going to go there. Oh, yes. But um, and he died in Greece, uh, fighting for the Greek nationalists. I think against the Ottomans, actually. Oh, really? But anyway, um, <clears throat> he wrote a poem called Ozymandias. Yes. And I, the one, the one of the reason I like this poem is quite a short poem. It re- it's quite Quranic. Yes. In its lesson, you know, uh, the Quran uh, is compatible with the Quran's outlook on the human history and yeah. the fall of tyrants. Um, and I'll just read it out. Um, and I do recommend you go away and um, read it for yourself. There are plenty of wonderful YouTube videos of great actors reading it out, mm. and it's a, and some has amazing cartoons with it as well. Yeah, some have got millions of hits, so it's a very popular poem today. Mm. <clears throat> so he writes, uh, Shelley writes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and, and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You should be on the stage, um... I am with you. <laughs> so this idea of, uh, uh, you know, a great uh, king of kings who yes. boasted about yes. exalted like Pharaoh. It's like the Quranic Pharaoh. Yes. Um, but, and the only, the only remembrance yeah. of him is this yeah. broken 
statue, two vast and trunkless legs, yeah. you know, of stone, um, boasting about how mighty. But nothing remains apart from sand, yeah. and he's forgotten to history. Yeah. And this is the fate of tyrants, ultimately, who exalt themselves. They will, they will be reduced to nothing. My wife's an English teacher, and oh, uh, right. she, uh, Ozymandias is uh, part of uh, the GCSE text. Ah. And uh, she says that um, students find that very difficult to access because, of course, the mm. language is pretty dense there, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but so poetry is, is really challenging. It's, it's there to challenge um, yeah. reader. I mean, people can, you know, uh, expend the energy to, you know, uh, to work out and to, uh, to go to work and, and to engage in the... Then spending a little bit of energy on poetry is just another thing to expend energy on. And, of course, and I think it's yeah. worthwhile. And the um, Arabs have a rich um, heritage yeah. in, in, in poetry, right? Absolutely. Pre-Islamic yeah. uh, poetry and, yeah. and, and after that, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, so uh, that's the Oxford Book of English Verse um, yeah. by uh, Ricks. Or he's the editor. Yeah. He's actually an English guy at Boston University. Um, Fantastic. Let's move to book number seven. Well, you'll be relieved to hear I'm not going to quote from this, but um, <laughs> I am going to praise it. Um, yeah. Misquoting Muhammad, the challenge and choices of interpreting the prophet's legacy by someone called Jonathan Brown, yes. who was your guest last week. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, and an astonishing individual. I had breakfast with him, ha ha. Yes. Um, a well. traditional breakfast, I hear. A, yes, well, an English gonna, breakfast. Yes, yes, we won't go down that because it was right. rather. Uh, not a, anyway, I'm going to go there. No, the, <laughs> the, the food was um, less than. It well, wasn't to your, sta- your well, culinary it standards. Was, it was, yeah, but we had a great conversation with an hour, for an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, he, he's an astonishing uh, man. I, yeah. I say that quite sincerely. Yeah. This book I recommend. And I've read it twice now because it's an excellent introduction to, you know, the history of Islam, uh, the the four schools, um, the the, leg- the challenges, and legacy of interpreting uh, the Prophet upon whom be peace's hadith and interpreting the Quran. Yeah. If you if you uh, for a non-Muslim, if you want a really good, uh, reliable introduction to Islam, mm. um, it's the best. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not the only one, but I, yeah. I think it's the best or one of the best. It's very readable. Yeah. And there's particularly, he goes into a lot of really good detail about how to interpret Quran 434, for example. I won't yeah. go into that now. Yeah. But the way uh, that uh, that's interpreted these days and the way that some people, um, you know, deny, you know, some Muslims uh, deny 434 in the name mm-hmm. of maybe feminism or whatever. Okay. But he, he looks at the, all the various angles of how to interpret that in mm-hmm. a very, very interesting way. Yeah. Very helpful, I think. And same with the Hadood punishments and yeah. other hermeneutical issues. Yeah. Um, so I do recommend that very strongly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's move on to book six. Yes. Keeping on the theme of the Prophet Muhammad. This is a book of Sirah, a classic book of Sirah. Yes. uh, For me, um, this book, well, what is it? It's Muhammad, His Life Based on the Earlier Sources by Martin Lings, uh, published by Islamic Text Societies, Cambridge. Um, For me, this is the by far the the greatest biography of the Prophet in English. I'm not saying it's the greatest biography full stop. Yeah. There may be series, I'm sure there are series in Arabic which may be superior in their eloquence or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just talking about the English language. Yeah. Um, and some people have said, and I think rightly, that if it wasn't for the subject matter, I, the prophet himself, this particular biography would be one of the greatest biographies in the English language. Is that so? Because uh, it is written with, with uh, brilliance and eloquence and beauty. He writes like an angel. Mm. And I think because the subject matter is not being given... The, the credit and the state the stated recognition that it deserves. And the, the author himself is an English uh, revert to Islam, yeah. of course. He worked at the British Museum. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, this is just uh, stunning. And I'll just, if I may, just uh, read from you from the penultimate chapter. Please. Or maybe it's the, it's the last chapter. No, the penultimate chapter. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and it's entitled The Choice. Um, I won't give you a context. So I think we've become apparent what the, uh, the, the subject is. The prophet continually spoke of paradise. And when he did so, it was as a man who sees what he describes. This impression was confirmed by many other things, as, for example, when he once stretched out his hand as if to take something, then drew it back. He said nothing, but some of those who were with him noticed his action and questioned him about it. I saw paradise, he said, and I reached out for a cluster of its grapes. Had I taken it, ye would have eaten of it as long as the world endureth. They had grown accustomed to thinking of him as one who is already, in a sense, in the hereafter. Mm. Perhaps it was partly for this reason that when he spoke of his death, and when he inferred indirectly, as sometimes now he did, that it might be imminent, his words made little impression on them. Moreover, despite his 63 years, he still had the stature and grace of a much younger man. His eyes were still bright and there were only a few white hairs in his black hair. Yet on one, on one occasion, a remark of his, when he was with his wives, was sufficiently ominous to prompt the question as to which of them would be the first to rejoin him in the next world. He replied, She of the longest reach would be the soonest of you to join me. Whereupon they set about measuring their arms one <laughs> against another. Presumably, though it's not recorded, Salda was the winner of this contest, for she was the tallest of them, and in general, the largest. Zainab, on the other hand, was a small woman with an arm to match, but it was Zainab who died first of them all, with an, uh, some ten years later. Only then did they realise that by she of the longest reach, the prophet had meant the most giving, for Zainab was exceedingly generous, like her predecessor of the same name, who had been called the mother of the poor. End quote. Oh, yeah. I mean, Great. it is a beautiful storyteller, yeah. so I do recommend Mohammed his life based on the earliest sources by Martin Lings. Tell me more about Martin Lings, because I, I, I notice a number of converts, a number of reverts who, who become Muslim, uh, they become Muslim through books like Martin Lings' uh, Sirah. So mm. what do we know about Martin Lings and his... Do you know, I, I, um, I have read about it. I think he was um, a senior uh, chap in the British, uh, British Museum, yeah. the head of department, I think it was Antiquities or... Wow. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, he was a Sufi, um, a, a very prominent, well-known Sufi yeah. of that generation. So he knew people like um, uh, Guy Eaton and, and others like that. Yeah. Very erudite man, very well, very educated in the Western tradition. He taught um, Shakespeare, actually, really? um, at a, a university in Egypt, or the University of Cairo, I think it was, actually. Uh, that was his first academic job. Yeah. Um, so he, he knew about that and, and, the, and the, the Islamic tradition, which he knew very intimately as well. Thank you. He, author of many, many books. Yes. Um, I can't remember when he died, but it was um, sort of late 20th century. Right. Date. Okay. Well, let's move on to book number five. We're halfway through now. Book halfway five. through, yes. Um, now this one, uh, another heavyweight, I'm afraid. 
Uh, it's entitled Ibn Taymiyyah on Reason and Revelation by Carl Sheriff Al-Tubki, mm-hmm. published by uh, Brill. Um, uh, Carl, or Sh- Sharif, is a professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at Brandeis University in the United States, one of the Ivy League universities in right. America, a very elite university. Yes. And when I first um, contacted uh, him, um, he's a friend now, um, uh, I invited him on to Blogging Theology to talk about this book, yes. um, and which I hadn't read. Right. And he said to me, um, well, you... I'll come on once you've read the book, <laughs> which is his PhD dissertation, by yes, the way. This is a, a doctorate dissertation published. Yeah. So he actually sent me um, the book, and uh, he's inscribed it very beautifully on the inside cover. Yeah. When was this? Um, February 2022, so it's just over a year ago. Nice. Uh, and I did read it. I read most of it in Bahrain, of all places. When I went on holiday, I went to this resort, and I yes. sat there and thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. Um, why is this important? Because for me, it's important, apart from the sheer brilliance of the book, is that he introduced to me a high-level academic uh, uh, analysis and exposition of Ibn Taymiyyah's philosophy, his theology, his understanding of akal and nakal, reason and revelation. Yeah. Um, and for two reasons. One, um, I, I am now extremely impressed with Ibn Taymiyyah as a genius, really? as, as a... As a a phenomenal intellect. Now, that's controversial because a lot of people don't like him. Yeah. Um, and those that do like him don't always understand him quite as well, I mm-hmm. would argue. Mm. But he is. He's on the same level, dare I say it, as uh, Al-Ghazali. I'm sorry if that offends. Yeah. But in terms of just sheer genius and his command of all the Islamic sciences, um, whether it be uh, law or philosophy or theology. Yes. Or, and as a human being, he, he was a very courageous man. He... He uh, did jihad against the invading Mongols yes. and threatened to destroy Damascus, as you probably know. And he, and even more than that, he went to the, the ruler of um, the Mongols um, to uh, complain about how the, the ruler had unjustly imprisoned Muslim and Christian and Jewish prisoners of war. And he went there and he rebuked the ruler. This is the superpower of the day. He was invading his country. He yeah. said, you must let them go if you want to be just. Yes. You must. Let them go. And the ruler, I forget the name of the ruler, was so impressed with the courage and integrity of this man, Ibn Taymiyyah, that he let them go. I mean, not just Ibn Taymiyyah, but the soldiers, uh, yeah. the, the prisoners of war, the, the innocent Christians and Jews and Muslims who'd just been captured. Yes. So he exhibited personal, great personal courage. Um, now, he was a bit of a cantankerous bloke. I mean, you know, he... he we all it, are. Yes. Well, yeah, but yeah. he was especially so. So, you yeah. know, he upset one or two people. Yes. Uh, and he was in and out of prison for yes. his various alleged uh, crimes, yes. which were purely intellectual. He disagreed with certain opinions on right. Aki, Akida matters. Mm. But, hey, um, but so he, uh, for me, he's a, a, a heroic figure yeah. in the best sense, uh, but also a towering intellectual. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with everything he says. Yes. That's not my point. My point is he is a man who has often been, particularly in the West, particularly his alleged connection with, you know, Al-Qaeda or whatever, is complete rubbish. Yes. Uh, you know, no, he would never support anything. Terrorism is abhorrent to is his Islamic tradition, and he would condemn it himself. Right. Um, but I, I do recommend this particular book. It's not, as I say, it is a PhD dissertation. Mm. so It's, it's not, quite heavy. Uh, yes, but I, li- I like heavy. Yes. Uh, and I just want to read a, a paragraph, if I may. Um which my second point is where he, well, I'll, I'll 
perhaps explain after I've read it why I think it's significant. This is page 91. Mm. Regarding matters of creed, Ibn Tamir also looked to the first three generations, those of the Salaf, as the sole standard by which to judge correct belief, both in terms of the Salaf's substantive doctrine and in terms of their specific methods of approaching the texts and using reason to gain a proper understanding of them. Mm. Ibn Taymiyyah did not condemn Kalam. He pauses for dramatic yeah. effect. Yeah. In the sense of disciplined reasoning about theological matters, mm. outright. Rather, he distinguished between a Kalam Sunni and a Kalam Bidi, that is, between an orthodox and a heterodox way of reasoning about religious truths. Mm. And he goes on. Now, that's a nuance yes. that is important. Because I so often hear a defender, alleged defender, I say alleged defenders in Timmy today as if they know what he's talking about, yeah. uh, saying something quite um, crude and binary. Uh, uh, Kalam bad. Well, no, some Kalam is acceptable yes. and some is not. And it's the same with Sunnism, um, uh, Sufism. Um, Ibn Timmy explicitly praises and endorses Sufi theologians and so on. Yeah. If they're theology and their spirituality is within the divine law. If it's a Sharia-compliant Sufism, he's very happy with it. It's only when, in his view, it exceeds the bounds of the law into bidder practices that he condemns it. Now, this matters because I hear some of my Salafi brothers say, Sufism is bad, it's Mm -hmm. haram. Mm -hmm. And I say, it depends what you mean by Sufism. It's a very broad spectrum of different kind of can be a different kind of schools of thought. Yes. And Ibn Tamir didn't condemn Sufism. He condemned non-Sharia compliant Sufism. <laughs> and there are plenty of quotes from this book from Ibn Tamir that state exactly that. I mean, quotes from Ibn Tamir that say that. Yes. So what I like about this book, it, when it comes to even Ibn Tamir's defenders today, who often don't really represent his thought accurately, mm. that it's, it's a kind of an uh, 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 inaccurate caricature, unfortunately. Even to me himself was a much more sophisticated and nuanced thinker who could discriminate between the haram and the halal, yeah. even within those practices that modern Ibn Taymiyyah disciples just com- dismiss completely. And have you ever... So uh, Professor Al-Tugbi uh, said that once you've read the book... Uh, he'll come onto your show. Did he return? Did he come onto your oh, show? Oh, sorry, yes, he did. Oh, yeah, yes. oh yeah, he's I'm been several that, times now. Yeah. Um, and he did actually, um, this is another kind of story in a way, he did uh, a, an amazing um, video on uh, LGBT uh, oh. and the Islamic response. Right. Now, I always, I'd always been told when I started doing blogging theology that don't do videos for more than 20 minutes because yes. people's attention span doesn't last that long. Absolutely. I'm thinking, well, hang on, people go and see Spider-Man movies and they last three hours. What's, yeah. well, anyway, so he came on and did this video on Islam and LGBT, a four-hour wow. video yes. replete with slides, and it's had over 120,000 hits. I see. Yeah. And, it's, and it's been translated into uh, many other languages, uh, German and uh, French, for example. Yeah. It's been translated into Arabic. Um, it's a wonderful resource, and yeah. uh, it's now referenced uh, by other uh, places um, as, as a standard work that one must consult. So that puts the lie to only 20 minutes. Um, so he's an amazing scholar. I, I had dinner with him a couple of times in Istanbul when yeah. we were there. Yeah. He's a really humble man, uh, not very, very nice person. And uh, anyway, so that's... Thank you very much. Let's move on phrase. to book number four. Yes. Um, let's do something completely book, yes. different. 
Um, this book um, is called Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age by Dale Allison, mm. who's a professor of New Testament studies at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, one of the leading, if not the leading, well, along with Harvard, uh, seminaries in the United States. Um, and uh, a hugely privileged to have him on Blogging Theology a couple of months ago to talk about this is a new book. Yeah. Um, and just as it says on the back cover here, despite widespread scepticism on the matter, a significant number of people today in the West have stories of religious experience, mm. moments of inexplicable terror or rapturous joy, visions, near-death experiences of the afterlife, encounters with angels, heavenly voices and premonitions. How should rationally-minded people respond? And uh, Professor Allison um, gives many uh, first-person accounts of what's, uh, you know, pe people's, people who are not believers in demons or angels, just regular sane people, have had the most extraordinary spiritual experiences with, uh, with evil. Mm. Uh, this is not embodied evil, it's, it's, uh, or it can be, or, de or angels, right. uh, or, or other kind of supernatural. And this goes on under the, the radar of our secular world. Uh, and they're not often spoken about by people because they don't want to be thought to be mad mm. or to be diagnosed with a psychiatric condition. And maybe they're very reluctant to speak about them. Mm. They're otherwise perfectly sane. And there's not an obvious explanation like, oh, they're on drugs or they're drunk or they've hit the their head themselves on the head or something. These are just ordinary sane people. Yes. Um, but one of the things, so this book is full of these marvelous accounts. And he does, he's not gullibly saying, oh, they're all true at all. Right. He He's very cautious in evaluating them using common sense and reason to say, well, is this, you know, anyway, uh, yeah. the book itself is really worth reading. Right. But I just wanted to share um, with you <coughs> some of the things that I find, I've always found most fascinating. On page 133, hmm. the most intriguing, it talks about um, near-death experiences. And he says, the most intriguing evidence for the extra subjective nature of NDEs, near-death experiences, is this. Many people claim to have seen, while under anesthesia or otherwise unconscious, and from a point of view outside the body, things that they should not have been able to see. If even a single such claim is true, the standard accounts of sense perceptions cannot, to understate the matter, be the whole picture. And that's typical of this guy. He understates things. He, when I interviewed him, I said, look, why don't you push the point home? Because this, this has consequences mm. in terms of our worldview but and he didn't want to do that in the book so i just just one random example these are the words of an icu intensive care unit doctor yeah. quote i operated on a woman under general anesthetic and when she woke up she described her operation as if she had been on the ceiling not only that she also described the operation that took place in the next theater the amputation of a leg she saw the leg. She saw them pull the leg. She saw them put the leg in a yellow bag. She couldn't possibly have invented that. And she described it as soon as she woke up. I checked afterwards and the operation had indeed taken place in the next theatre. A leg had been amputated at the very same time that she was under anaesthetic and was thus totally disconnected from the world. End quote. There are many accounts that have been verified mm. of people who have had out-of-body experiences, not just near-death experience at that time, but out-of-body experiences during routine surgery and so on. 
people who have seen what's going on around them and heard what's going around them accurately reporting. Some of these people were born blind and born deaf. And there's academic, I think it's University of Kentucky or no, Minnesota. You can read it online. They did research into this. So people have been born blind and deaf who never seen or heard a thing in their life. Yeah. Who during a near-death experience actually left their bodies and saw what was going on and heard what was being said, accurately reporting it when they regained consciousness straight away to the attending physicians and surgeons and nurses. And this has been confirmed. This happens. Now, this is extraordinary. Hmm. Um, there are so many accounts like this now, thousands and thousands of accounts in respectable peer-reviewed academic research, and he quotes from a lot of it, that we're dealing here with something that can no longer be ignored. Hmm. And what does this tell us? And this is my question. Uh, yeah. How interesting. But what is it, what's the implications of this? Yeah. And that's what I really wanted to tease out of Professor Dale Allison. And I, I, I did mention a few co uh, consequences. Um, I mean, can you think of some that might impact on our worldview more generally? Well, I'm, I'm just trying to process this in relation to Islam and Muslims mm. and how we view the world. I'm still thinking about that. And, you know, how, of course, we know that at the time of the Sahaba, there were some Sahaba, there were some companions who did have farasa who had these you know the, the ability to know beyond their reality mm. when Umar bin Khattab he would meet someone and uh, just by looking at him for a second he would be able to say okay you are from such and such and you're mm. from this tribe and you and so you know and that is of course beyond his sense mm. reality um but uh, but yeah I'm, I'm thinking about I mean you tell me what 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 do you take from uh, well I, I, I take it the, the number of things that that our materialist worldview in the West is false. Yeah. Uh, because um, our consciousness, our, our minds are not merely the random byproduct of... When I was doing philosophy, I did philosophy at mind uh, at uni. And um, the standard model in philosophy, at least as it taught in, in uh, Anglo-American analytical philosophy, mm. is that the, the mind is an epiphenomenal byproduct of the brain. Mm. So ultimately you can reduce consciousness to uh, physiological processes. Yes. But this is not true because for a whole bunch of reasons, but not least because we now know that the mind, the conscious or the soul can actually leave the body um, and do amazing things that are verifiable now. So our material body may die or be completely non-functioning, yeah. but the mind is still very much alive and, and, and is not identifiable, is not identical with the brain. But so that's that kind of obvious consequence. But I have a more radical take on this. This is where it gets very controversial. It's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Is that Darwinian theory of evolution, by which the general account of it I'm not concerned with here, but specifically about the origin of human beings, mm. you know, the, the ascent of man, Darwin's book on this, yeah. suggests that we as a species are, are just the, um, the random evolutionary um, product of, pr pr not, not apes, because that's not what Darwin said, but by, you know, pre-hominid forms. Mm. But... I don't think that I think this these accounts question that radically because right. if we have souls, if we are more than just the material processes that produced us, yes, and uh, and there are many other accounts that give other interesting angles on this whole phenomena, um, then Darwin's account is radically incomplete about who we are. Yeah, we're, we're not just you know a random species on a minor planet that no one cares about and mm. we're just accidents. Mm. No. Because we are we are spiritual beings who inhabit a material body that transcends death, even transcends life during during some surgeries, 
And this is something about us and our significance, that we are spiritual beings. And Darwin has no explanation for that. Mm. It's all about, you know... Um, Matter, uh, material. Material yes. things yeah. and, and mutations. and so. It can't explain these things. Yeah. It can't begin... It doesn't have the cognitive le right level of explanation to begin. So we have to revise Darwin. I think one day that will happen. Mm. And it will be... And, the explanations ultimately about who we are will be religious. Mm. They have to be religious because it makes sense of all that we are yes. uh, as physical and spiritual and moral beings in the way that Darwin can't and yeah. atheism can't. Yeah. Let's move on to your yep. third. And uh, yep, this book um, is called The Book of Hadith, uh, oh. Sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, selected by Guy Eaton. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Guy Eaton, I've already mentioned, is an English um, Convert to Islam. Yes. And he wrote another book, which is my number two. So I'll save uh, that for then. Yes. But this is a wonderful book of, of Hadith uh, that he selected. Yeah. And, um, I'm, and I've often turned to this book over the years. I have several copies, one, one copy in London, one copy in France. Um, <laughs> and uh, page 116, Abu Huraira said that the messenger of God upon whom be peace said, yeah. how wretched is the one who is the slave of money and fine clothes. <laughs> He is only content when he receives, and he is bitter when he does not receive. He is wretched and confused. And if he is afflicted in the slightest, he cannot cope with his affliction. Blessed is the one who sets out with determination on God's path. With disheveled head and dusty feet, he carries out his duty with dedicated resolve. If he is assigned watch duty... He is on watch, and if he is assigned rear guard duty, he is on guard. He does not shirk his responsibilities. There's hadith from Bukhari, Fantastic. and it's full of wonderful, beautiful hadith yeah. uh, uh, on human transactions, supplications, afflictions, and death, prayer, on Islam itself, on um, character, foretelling the afterlife, the night journey, and so on and so on. A beautiful uh, book. Uh, so that was. I think that's it, and that's made me think about Ramadan. I mean, we have yep. we don't usually. I mean, I haven't for a long time just picked up a book of Hadith and just mm. read through the Hadith without oh, trying to d develop. This would be a, a really yeah. beautiful way of doing it because it's very accessible. Um, there are no explanations given. I yeah, think the, the Hadith right. is self-explanatory. Yeah, actually. great. No, thank you. I think that's. Um, uh, I'll put that on my list. Yeah. And uh, talking of Guy Eaton, uh, yes. this is my number two. Yes. Uh, it would be at number one, uh, but you'll see why it's not my number one in a <laughs> second. Uh, but but uh, Islam and the Destiny of Man by Guy Eaton. What can I say about this marvellous book? This book has probably been responsible for more conversions to Islam amongst the English-speaking yeah. peoples of the West than any other book. Right. Um, and uh, he was uh, a diplomat, uh, an author. He was a consultant at Regent's Park Mosque, where I said my shahada, an author of many books. He, yeah. often on Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, giving talks about Islam. Hmm. That's now published in, in a book form, he wrote. Um, what else can I say? You can see videos of him on, on uh, YouTube. I mean, he, he died about 10 years ago okay. now. Um, yeah. And this was the first book I ever read on Islam. So I wasn't a Muslim when I read this. I was a Christian, a committed Christian. Yeah. But by the time I'd finished reading it, my heart had become Muslim, even though ideologically I was still <laughs> not. Um, it, it's, uh, he writes like an angel. Yes. Uh, a very talented man. Uh, Tim Winter said he's the grandfather of English Islam, whatever that means. Yes. Um, and I recommend this book. Um, I, I continue to recommend this book to people. 
if you if you if you want to introduce um, Islam to a fairly educated uh, reader who's not familiar, then this book is, you know, just brilliant. Yeah. I now, I mean, having become a Muslim and learned a few more things, there are one or two things about his views I don't agree with, mm. um, but. You know, as I often say, we take the good and we leave the rest. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and uh, you know, overall, he's a Sunni Muslim who uh, is 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 in safe hands with one or two issues. But um, I mean, I, I would like to. I mean, <clears throat> so, yeah, that's an interesting point you make because often we read things to echo our worldview. <laughs> yes. Um, now, what you're describing there is, you know, you read to yes to critically challenge your worldview, but you come to books with a filter. You know, maybe Immanuel Kant's book, uh, if someone doesn't have a strong Islamic background, they may be swayed by some of his uh, moral philosophies, for example. Uh, but if you've got a strong Islamic filter, why not? Why not read widely and, and not only challenge your views, but uh, uh, reinforce your views by reading the views of others? I, I agree. I mean, by reading widely, what one, uh, it's like working out what, what one, uh, you know, one's muscle strength yeah. increases, yeah. one's capacity to uh, evaluate critically different writers increases because you if if we are so weak you know we're just gonna like a reed blowing in the wind you know we're always going to be changing our mind by every opinion i mean we're an advertiser's dream because mm. an advertiser simply has to say buy this exactly oh, yes. i'm going to buy it now because yeah. i have no opinions of my own yeah no you resist you know if, if it's bad for you don't go out and eat it all the True. time yeah. same for fashion same for anything and this as well we must mm. ex we've been given Fitra, the, the our critical faculties to think, mm. and if we refuse to use it, then we will be vulnerable. But um, the more we read diversely, the stronger our ability will be to think independently and critically. Yes. and that can't be a bad thing. We're not always just going to be uh, passive recipients of any strong opinion that blows us. And some Muslims think we are. Yes, and I think it's quite insulting. I'm not like that. No. I mean, if if I come across a view that I don't like, yeah, I'll know I don't like it. I don't follow it. You know, maybe I'm mistaken, maybe I should, but yeah. I'm going to have a reaction to it. Sure. So anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. I just thought I'd uh, just share uh, from chapter 12 before we go to our last book. Yes. Um, just to give you a flavor of his, uh, how he writes, uh, and just very insightful. Um, the title, uh, the chapter is entitled Other Dimensions. Mm. For Islam, as for Christianity, this life is a preparation for what is to come. But no one will seriously prepare himself for something that appears to him unreal, a fantasy, a dream. It's difficult enough for the young to grasp in an entirely concrete matter the fact that, assuming they survive, they will eventually be old people. How much more difficult then for the human creature, young or old, to understand that divine judgment, heaven and hell, will come as surely as tomorrow's dawn, or yet more surely, since that dawn cannot come unless God so wills. Whereas the advent of physical death and all that follows upon it represents the only infallible prediction we can make concerning our own future. The three monotheistic religions, unlike Hinduism, for example, are not altogether happy with the imagery of dreaming as applied to our present state of existence, although this imagery is by no means foreign to either Islam or Christianity. It is often misunderstood, since people readily take it to mean that life is less real than we take it to be, whereas the intention is to indicate that there are other possible states of experience so intense that, 
in relation to our everyday experience of this world, they may be compared to wakefulness in relation to dreaming. There is a hadith recorded by Muslim which can scarcely be interpreted in any other terms. The man who had the pleasantest life in the world, so we are told, would be dipped momentarily into hell on the day of resurrection. He will then be asked, Son of Adam, did you ever experience anything good? Did anything pleasant ever come your way? And he will reply, No, my Lord, I swear it. Then the man who, of all men, had the most miserable life on earth, would be dipped momentarily into paradise. He will then be brought before his Lord and asked, Son of Adam, did you ever have any misfortune? Did any distress ever come your way? And he will reply, No, my Lord, I swear it. No misfortune has ever come to me, and I have never known distress. End of the Hadith. And then Gaijin continues, It would be difficult to find a simpler or more striking illustration of the difference between degrees of reality as experienced by a consciousness transposed from a lower one to a higher one. At the same time, it offers, at least to those who are prepared to accept the possibility that there may be states of existence more real than anything we live through here, one answer to the question as to how God can allow the innocent to suffer in this world. If anyone were to awaken from a bad dream, full of fear and torment, to find himself at home beside his beloved, sunlight streaming through the window, a prospect of golden days before him, and all his deepest longings satisfied. For how long would he remember the pain of his dream? On the other hand, if he were to awaken from a dream of delight to find himself in an all-too-familiar prison cell, awaiting the next session of torture at the hands of merciless inquisitors and quite without hope, dream pleasure would melt away in moments. Whether it be sweet or sour, reality takes precedence over dreaming and the greater reality takes precedence over the lesser. End quote. So well written. It's incredibly well written yeah. and the book is like that from beginning to end. Fantastic. Um, yeah, a brilliant way of articulating in an English idiom uh, yes. the realities of Islam at its most beautiful and spiritually intense. This yeah. book is very intense. And it's like eating from a rich banquet of food. <laughs> yes. And one occasionally has to put it down and say, I'll come back to that another time because I need time, as we say today, to process what I've read or, as he might say, to digest the, the nourishment. Um, Fantastic. So uh, that's why I recommend Gaiden as the greatest English writer of Islam in terms of his eloquence. Yes. And your best book of all time, Paul? Well, yes. And, and this book, perhaps some might say, shouldn't be on this list and mm. I, because it is the Quran itself. And I say it shouldn't be on this list because it's not, it's not the writings of a man. This yeah. is the speech of God himself. So yeah. it belongs... On a, in a class of its own. Yes. In a bookshelf, it should be have its own book, separate shelf above the rest. Yes. It's not like the other books. But my only um, defense or an excuse for including it in number one, the top 10, yeah. is this is the translation I'm referring to. The meaning of the Holy Quran 
by Abdullah Yusuf Ali. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is my favourite translation yeah. of the Quran. I'm now aware of many, of course, since I um, and there are many brilliant ones. I uh, won't go into them, but yeah. what I like about this is not just the English translation, which is quite Shakespearean. It at is, times. yes. Um, is but it's the commentary um, on the Quran in English. And um, he often uh, occasionally references Shakespeare <laughs> and John Milton and Williams Wor William Wordsworth, the great, these great English poets, yeah. all three. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he quotes them to marvellous effect. Uh, and, um, and myself, as, as someone who really enjoys English literature, I really appreciate how he speaks to a, an English audience, mm. referencing uh, the greatest works in English language, in English literature, to uh, amplify and elucidate Quranic truth. Mm. And I'm, I'm aware of no other tafsir, set in English, that does this. It's unique. Mm. And this is why it'll always be a, a gem, I, I think. Uh, other, other English translations with commentaries are much more, uh, are much less, um, you know, eloquent and literary than, than his. Mm. Um, just give you one example Please, yeah. um, to conclude um, from Surah 103, uh, one of my favorite surahs. Uh, and I won't mention the Arabic. Although I do actually pray this in Arabic. I know it from my... Uh, anyway, that's another subject. Yes. Um, so he, he translates it in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful. By the token of time through the ages, verily man is in loss, except such as have faith and do righteous deeds and join together in the mutual teaching of truth and of patience and constancy. Very brief. Hmm. Al-Asr. Time through the ages, he mm. translates it. Mm. And the little note, uh, one of several notes to this, here, uh, Yusuf Ali says, an appeal is made to time as one of the creations of Allah, of which everyone knows something, but of which no one can fully explain the exact significance. Mm. Time searches out and destroys everything material. No one in secular literature has expressed the tyranny of never-resting time better than Shakespeare in his sonnets. <laughs> For example, see Sonnet 5, Never-Resting Time. 12, Nothing Gainst Time's Scythe Can Make Defence. And Sonnet 64, When I Have Seen Time's Fell Hand Defaced, The Rich Proud Cost of Outworn Buried Age. <laughs> If we merely run a race against time, uh, Abdullah Ali writes, we shall lose. It is the spiritual part of us that conquers time. So actually, when I looked at this, I went ran off and looked uh, again at uh, Sonnet 64 and read it again. And there's a fa fantastic YouTube recitations by well-known actors. Yes. And you think, this is perfect. This is, I mean, a perfect accompaniment as a commentary to a Western audience yes. on this surah. And I think... How amazing. And only he's done this. So this is by far my favorite book in, in the Arabic and the English translation. And if I was on a desert island, I can only take one book with me. Yes. This would be the book. Literally, this would be the book. Wow. Thank you very much. I feel cultured in your presence uh, today. Um, um, now, um, have you ever thought of starting up a book club? A YouTube channel. Oh, a book club. <laughs> An actual book club online or maybe even in, in person. I thought about it, yes. Yeah, why not? I think that would be a wonderful idea. Um, okay, I'll think yeah. about it some more. I, I'm aware that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf has a, a very successful book club okay. uh, going, and I don't want to in any way compete, not that I could compete with him, right. but um, 
but no, I, I yeah, okay. Thanks for the uh, reminder. I think it's a great I, idea. I'll, I'll think yeah. about it. I think there are. I mean, I, I noticed from the comments on your channel, mm. uh, whenever you advise uh, a book or whenever you mention a book to to your viewers, people want to buy those books and want to read the books. Yes. So, well, that's good because that's the intention. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. I think it's uh, when I came on your channel, I remember um, we had a great exchange of books. Shabir Akhtar. Oh, turned yes. up as one of our well this is things. the thing some of that show about actors but it's yeah. easily been in my top 10 yes. uh, uh, particularly his one the crown and the uh, secular mind of course so yeah. uh, it was unfair of me to exclude him in a way <laughs> but there were only 10 so someone no, had to go i'm sure he, he accepts that i'm sure he'll be okay with that but uh but wonderful uh it's been a great experience and uh, my pleasure i will put uh, the titles of these books oh, these right. books in our uh in the show notes and mm. if anyone wants to access the books i would also put a link to where the books can be purchased. Inshallah. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Amjad, it's been a yes. pleasure. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair.